We turn now to our scripture readings and I'm going to read the first reading and then Ben's going to come up and read our second reading. So our first reading this morning is from Mark chapter 16, the first eight verses and a, a very familiar part of scripture for most of us. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. The second passage is Romans 6, starting at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in, death, in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather... Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Thanks, Ben and John, for reading that. 
Um, so our Mark, uh, Rini, is quite a familiar one with us. The, the Romans 6 one uh, maybe is not as familiar, but they actually partner together uh, quite well. Uh, but before we um, have a look at those, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord God, that through your word we can understand you and what you've done for us through Jesus. Uh, we pray as we look at these passages that you would reveal them to us, what they mean, and uh, we'll be able to apply them to our hearts. We thank you, Lord God. We praise you. We pray all this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, today obviously is Easter Sunday, the day we stop to remember uh, Jesus' resurrection uh, from death on the cross. And it's a day to remember Christ's victory over death and the hope that is now ours and the life offered in eternity. Uh, this is what we celebrate. This is what we believe. But I think that we don't always feel this way and live this way. At least that's something I've noticed. We, we don't always live in the reality of the resurrection. I mean, after all, what does the resurrection actually mean for us? The fact that Jesus came back to life uh, it shows us that death is defeated and we can now live forever in heaven. But what does it mean for us here and now? Like of, of a day to day, like what, what does it even really mean? What does it mean to live as a people of the resurrection? So on Friday, Jeff talked about uh, the death of Jesus and how Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So what does it mean for you, though, here today... Uh, and in your regular lives, as you, after a nice holiday, go back to work, uh, spend time with family, or go out on your holiday, wherever it is that you're up to, that the God-man is alive. What does that really mean for you today? So today I want to look at the two passages from Scripture, uh, which we've just read. Uh, we have an account of the empty tomb, and what the Apostle Paul tells us about what uh, Jesus' return to life means for us. So we'll be having a quick look at uh, both passages and what they tell us and how we can apply these to our lives. So to start, let's have a look at that uh, passage from the Gospel of Mark and what it has to say in the final chapter. So Mark's Gospel is arguably the first account of Jesus' life recorded and it's a foundation on which uh, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke were written. They kind of use it as a bit of a foundation for writing their own. And in chapter 16, we see that Jesus has died and being buried in a tomb. And two women come to the tomb to take care of the body after the Sabbath, a day of rest. But when they arrive, they find that the body is gone. This is what it says in verses 4 to 7. But when they looked up and they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Jesus is alive. The God-man has come back to life. He, he's done the impossible. I mean, it can't really be overstated what Jesus has done. I mean, we, we're so familiar, I think, with this, this narrative now, this Easter story, uh, that I think the reality of this history, and I'll say that again, this history, uh, has dulled maybe a bit for us. 
Someone who was arrested, beaten, whipped and tormented, nailed to a cross, and then for good measure had a spear stabbed into his side just to ensure that he really was dead, lay in a tomb, has come back to life. Has come back to life. I mean, this isn't like, you know, the third page of the advocate kind of stuff here. Uh, or clickbait article on Facebook. And, they, you know, they're, they're always disappointing, whatever it is that you click on. Um, this is revolutionary news here. And it's not like the sort of stories that you might watch on A Current Affair, where a person, you know, it has those stories where a person was technically declared dead for three minutes, and then they came back to life. It's not one of those sorts of stories. So I just want to put into perspective a bit of what... Uh, should have happened to Jesus' body. So I did a bit of uh, a Google research uh, about what happens to a body when it dies. And I apologise to the faint of heart. So this is what it said. The first stage of human decomposition is called autolysis. Sorry if you're medical people out there and I'm saying this wrong. Or self-digestion and begins immediately after death. As soon as blood circulation and respiration stop, the body has no way of getting oxygen or removing waste. Excess carbon dioxide causes an acidic environment, causing membranes and cells to rupture. The membranes release enzymes that begin eating the cells from the inside out. And 24 to 72 hours after death, the internal organs decompose. Three to five days after death, the body starts to bloat and blood-containing foam leaks from the mouth and nose. This is kind of what should have been happening to Jesus' body when the women arrive after the Sabbath. Remember, when Jesus um, came to Lazarus and raises him from the tomb after several days, do so people remember that, uh, that story? The women at, the, at Lazarus' tomb are expecting a bad odour, the stink of a rotting body. This is kind of what they would have been expecting from Jesus' tomb and why they want to come and place spices on the body and to help, to an extent, uh, the smell and to extend the decomposing process. Now imagine the shock to find out that this man, this, the body of this man, Jesus, is alive. He's alive. But in many ways, this isn't actually the miraculous part, uh, Jesus coming back to life. What is amazing is what the angel actually says last, that Jesus is alive and they will see him just as he told you. Just as he told you, it says in verse 7. Jesus' resurrection isn't some sort of freak occurrence, nor is it some sort of kind of afterthought or quick fix by God after kind of a bit of an embarrassing disaster on Good Friday. Jesus knew he was going to die and that he would return to life on the third day. Jesus hasn't simply cheated death. Jesus has conquered death. The power of death has no hold over him. And because of that, it has no hold over you. <laughs> when, we were read, uh, when we read the story of Scripture, the great narrative of the Bible, everything has been building up to this point of Jesus dying 
and coming back to life. Everything that God has been doing from the Garden of Eden, the promise to Abraham, the exodus and the law given to Moses, the judges, kings and prophets, the calling in the wilderness of John the Baptist, all of this has been looking forward to this moment in history. God has always had a plan to solving the problem of sin and death, even before they entered the world. <coughs> this is such an incredible comfort and hope that we have that the greatest tragedy which eventually comes comes for all of us, death has been defeated. Death has been defeated. That through Jesus you have the hope of joining him in his resurrection to new life. That one day all who put their trust in Jesus will be brought back to life, free of sin, to live in paradise forever. Well, does this mean that death now is easy? Is death easy? Well, when I was putting my son to bed not long ago, uh, we'd done our stories, our bed routine, and he was settling down to bed like any other night. <coughs> but all of a sudden, quite solemnly and quietly, he said to me, Daddy, I'm afraid to die. Now, I, I don't know where this came from. Uh, we talked about it a bit. Maybe it was the scary stories we'd have been telling you. Maybe we came from that. I don't know. But I don't know where this really came from. So, you know, I comforted him, um, you know, and he's, that he's quite young and we all have, uh, that he'll have a long life, hopefully, and that Jesus takes all those who love him to heaven. And I believe all that is true. You know, we believe that is true. Uh, but when he said this, <coughs> that he's afraid to die, deep down, and I, think, I think this is many ways the response many of us probably want to say, deep down, I actually kind of wanted to say, so am I. So am I. There's a difference, though, between uh, not fearing death, that being dead, and the fear of dying. There's a difference between being dead and the fear of dying. Even the heroes of the faith, though resolute in their belief in eternity, did not seek out or take lightly the experience of death. What will happen after you die? The fear of death, the uncertainty of what awaits you, though, beyond your final breath, it's not simply a a child's fear. It's not just a question for those who are timid. It's a question that we all must consider. We must all consider what we rest our hope in when your final day comes. Through Jesus, however, we do have a hope. We have a certainty. It isn't a, like a wishful thinking sort of hope, like a, a desperate reliance on, on good luck sort of hope. It is a certainty that just as Jesus returned to new life, so will all those who believe in him and love him. So we have a hope for the future, a hope beyond the grave of life eternal without sin, But coming back to my original question, what does this mean for us today, though? What does it mean to live a life in the here and now in light of the resurrection? 
Is the resurrection, as wonderful and amazing as it is, just kind of useful knowledge to kind of have on hand at the moment? A bit of a a superannuation fund uh, after death, knowing that you'll be looked after. But it doesn't really kind of matter at the moment. Is that kind of what the resurrection means for us? Well, in Paul's letter to the Romans, this is kind of a question that he addresses. Paul is writing to the church in Rome around kind of 20 to 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, writing his letter, in fact, before the Gospel of Mark is written. Paul is writing on a range of topics in his letter to the church in Rome. When we get to chapter 6, he has been addressing the the topic of sin, uh, its origin, its nature and the law, and how Jesus solves the problem of sin. Uh, In this passage we are looking at, Paul uses language linking our new life free from sin to being people of the resurrection. Paul says that the resurrection changes how we are to live and how we are to reject the past life of sin. This is what it says in verses 5 to 7. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, but we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. As we looked at on Good Friday, sin was nailed to the cross, that our old life of sin and rebellion to God is dead, and we are set free from this. In fact, it's not just that we were living kind of a lazy pattern of life to sin, unable to kind of just get out of a bit of a bad habit. We were slaves to sin, slaves. Sin was our master and had utter control over our lives and ultimately our future. The only way of escaping from sin was dying. And this is what Jesus did in our place so that we could be alive and free. (coughs) Let's jump down to verses uh, 11 and 14 of that passage, which say this. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Nor, uh, sorry, uh, uh, death no longer has master over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives... He lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness." For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. So, I go back to that question that I started off with. What does it mean to live in the light of the resurrection? Paul says that sin can no longer have any part of your life. The way of sin and death is the past. And you must now live as someone who is saved and alive with no fear of your former life. Now, I don't particularly watch horror movies. I don't know if that's kind of your thing, uh, but I'm sure you're all familiar at least with the idea of, like, you know, zombies and and ghost films. 
Uh, films about people or things that are dead but come back and are kind of, you know, chasing you in the middle of the night, are all ugly and terrifying. Uh, probably like most people, uh, you also maybe have a slight fear of what is in the dark, like when you come home at night and you're walking back into your home and, you know, what is kind of out there. Or maybe it's a fear of what is lurking under the bed. You know, what, what's that pulling at your toe in the middle of the night? Kind of like, what, what is that? Um, is there something out to get me? Is there a ghost or ghoul out there to get me? And I think sometimes we can be a bit like this with our past sinful selves, worried that the dead life is going to come back and get you. How do we combat this? Paul says, instead of this fear, in verse 13, that you are to not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. We are not to offer ourselves to sin. We are not to seek after it or even entertain the thought of it. This is not to say that we will always, uh, would not be tempted or at times fail. Uh, although we will fail to sin and will give in to temptation in our weakness and human nature, it is not to be your master. We will all sin and give in to temptation, but it is not to be your master. Rather, we are to offer every part of ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. Those who put their trust in Jesus and his resurrection are to be instruments of righteousness. Being a forgiven, rescued people who totally reshape how we live in this world. We will no longer live for selfishness, greed, anger, bitterness. These are the things of the past. This passage calls us to deep reflection and self-analysis of character and attitude as people of the resurrection. Are you bitter against your brother and sister in Christ? Is there some slight which has made you angry towards them? Are you never satisfied with what you have and instead are, are seeking after uh, more and more, the next best thing or at least to have more than others? Are you desiring what you know is wrong, like lusting after something or seeking what is not yours? Are you ignoring the call to love those around you, to be patient and forbearing because you just don't have the time or it just, it just gets a bit hard sometimes? And, man, you know yourselves better than I do. Paul says that these things need to change, that these things are the way of the dead and can no longer have a part in the lives of people of the resurrection. <clears throat> Instead, are you living for righteousness? Are you seeking to be an instrument of righteousness? How are you living to be a servant of God to those around you? How are you using your, your skills and your gifts to show love, mercy, kindness, hospitality to your brothers and sisters here? How are you looking to build up one another in love to know Jesus more and more? 
But of course, it's, not, it's, it's more than that. Being an instrument of righteousness is more than just uh, the treatment of those immediately around you. God calls us to boldly proclaim the gospel and to serve him with everything that we are. So how can you use everything that you are uh, while you are here on this earth to be an instrument of righteousness? How can you be a champion for what is good and true to serve the poor and those in need? How can you seek to let people know that God offers the forgiveness of sin freely and without discrimination? How can you let your family, your friends, your neighbours, your colleagues know that death is not the end? That at Easter, a time which uh, for many has been kind of reduced uh, to a holiday and chocolate, is the time when we remember and celebrate the salvation of the world. When we were looking at um, that final chapter before in the Gospel of Mark, and it appeared actually on the screen, uh, I deliberately stopped at verse 8. The reason being that it is likely that verses 9 to 20 are not actually part of the original uh, Gospel of Mark that was written. It was, it was likely added on later. Uh, it's no secret. Uh, it's written in most of your modern Bibles, which have it written in there in italics or something. Part of the reason it was likely added in is because of the rather uh, unsatisfactory kind of way that Mark finishes the gospel, namely the absence of the appearance of the risen Jesus. <clears throat> but in many ways, uh, just observing, in many ways the, the gospel of Mark ends with what is kind of actually our experience of the risen Jesus. Uh, we haven't seen the risen Jesus. Well, we don't see him in our day-to-day -day lives. Though he's alive, uh, we do not see him and interact with him uh, as we will one day in eternity. But what we do have is the message of hope which has been passed on to us and is now the message that we have to share. The message of Jesus' death and resurrection is, of course, not just an Easter story. As said before, it shapes all of Scripture and is the message that for 2,000 years has been proclaimed to the lost and dying. So, as a people trusting in the resurrection, let's pray that God would use our words, use missionaries, uh, use churches, use everyday men and women and children to increase the kingdom as we patiently wait for the day when Jesus will return in glory, calling all who have trusted in him to a life where there is no sin, there is no death, but rather life to the full in eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came back to life. We thank you that through your death and your resurrection, we have the hope of eternity. We thank you, Lord, for what you have written uh, in your scriptures, for what your servant Paul wrote. We pray, Lord God, that we would live as people of the resurrection, people not just knowing that we uh, have a hope in the future, but we live out this hope here and now. We pray that you would help us to use our gifts and our skills and ability uh, to live as people of righteousness, to be instruments for you, Lord God, to serve you in all that we do. Help us, Lord God, to boldly proclaim the good news. Uh, which is given to us and now we can share with others. Thank you, Lord God, for the great love that you showed us through Jesus. And it's in his wonderful name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat>